Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Today's episode finds us in Genesis chapter 43, and as always, I am glad you are here with me. So let us pause now for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 43, beginning in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, and their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongly with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, 
Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise and go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the present and Benjamin, and they took double the money in their hand, and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal. And make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, which was in their hand, into the house, and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. 
So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn, according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. As we get started with my comments here, I would like to consider two words, envy and covetousness. Now, you may think that these words are synonyms. While they are similar in their meanings, let us consider the ways in which they are not similar. According to the philosopher Cornelius Plantinga, Jr., quote, Envy is a nastier sin than mere covetousness. What an envier wants is not, first of all, what another has. What an envier wants is for another not to have it. To envy is to resent somebody else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it. The coveter has empty hands and wants to fill them with somebody else's goods. The envier has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the envied. Envy, moreover, carries overtones of personal resentment. An envier resents not only someone else's being blessed or someone else's blessing, excuse me, but also the one who has been blessed. Let me say that one more time. An envier resents not only somebody else's blessing, but also the one who has been blessed, end quote. You see, dear listener, it was envy which drove Joseph's brothers to their actions. It's not that they wanted Joseph's coat. They hated what it represented, and they did not want Joseph to have it. They did not want Joseph to have the position that he had. And this is seen through their actions. Remember that Joseph was stripped of his coat. He was beaten by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit. And that is not covetousness. Merely wanting what Joseph had. No, this was a very strong desire that Joseph not have the favoritism of his father at all. It is envy which drives people to kill in a jealous rage. It is envy that I have personally witnessed, even among clergy, as one watches the apparent success of another as the other struggles in so-called ministry. Through all of this, we see that God was working in ways far beyond what these brothers, to include Joseph himself, would have ever dreamed. The covenant community of God, the nation of Israel, 
would find a home in Egypt as slaves. Yet they would, as a nation, persevere. Indeed, what was their slavery was actually God's preservation. This great sin of envy would have to be completely eradicated if the nation was going to survive. And these patriarchs of what would become the tribes of Israel and Israel being the covenant nation, these patriarchs must love, they must honor, and they must trust one another. And with this in mind, Joseph has some burning questions in his mind. Were these men who now bow down before him the same as the envious young men he once knew? Under the right circumstances, would they turn on Benjamin? Were their hearts filled with hate, jealousy, or revenge for perceived wrongdoing? And as we will see, Joseph is very determined to find out the answer to these questions. So with a look at verses 1 through 10, it looks like Jacob is going to have to let Benjamin go after all. The grain supply has run out. Jacob tells his sons to return to Egypt. But we should notice how Israel brings this to their attention. Israel or Jacob, I tend to use the names interchangeably. He tells the boys to return to Egypt to buy food. And he acts as though it's no big deal. Remember that it was Israel who stated, or Jacob who stated, that they were not going to ever get Benjamin for the trip. But now it seems as though he is breaching the subject. He's the one who brought it up. And he probably would have avoided bringing this subject up. It's like an elephant in the room. Everyone knows it's there, but they are not going to bring it up. And finally, when Jacob realizes the situation and how desperate it is, he begins this conversation. And it's Judah who speaks up to remind Jacob, also known as Israel, that they cannot return without Benjamin or this Egyptian ruler will think that they are liars and spies. And verse 6 is very significant because Jacob's name now becomes Israel again in the text. And I point this out because there are reasons in the text, not so much what I'm talking to, but within the text, there are reasons that his name has changed throughout the narrative. It seems that when Jacob is about to do something correctly, the scripture calls him Israel. And this renaming yet again has not happened since chapter 37, verse 13. Why? Why is it now his name is switching back to Israel? Well, I would submit for your consideration that Joseph was moving forward without, I'm sorry, let me rephrase. I said Joseph, I meant to say Jacob. It is Jacob that was moving forward without faith in God. 
And Jacob was completely broken down because of the loss of Joseph. And Jacob had tried to control everything. And this was part of his motivation for favoring Joseph to begin with. Jacob wanted Rachel's sons to be his inheritance and legacy. Jacob wanted Joseph to be the true firstborn son. And thus we see his name is Jacob. But now, as he considers allowing Benjamin to go, we see a slight return to his faith in God. So he is now moving forward in faith, baby steps, though it may be, small steps, but his faith is now in God, and thus the scripture refers to him as Israel. And as I've stated before, Israel meaning ruled by God. In fact, as we get to verse 14, we hear Israel say, May God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And this, dear friends, is the absolute surrender to God. Here we see a man chosen by God, who is finally at the end of his rope after planning and scheming and wrestling with God and attempting to control things which really were impossible, Israel now surrenders. Also notice Judah is the one talking with Israel. Why is Judah the one talking to his father? Now we've gone through this extensively in other episodes, but I'm going to give you a review here, and it won't be the last time we talk about these brothers, but let's just review these brothers' activities. I'm not going to get into a lot of detail, uh, but we will find the answer as to why Judah is the spokesperson as we consider the lives of Judah's older brothers. First, we've got Reuben, and Reuben had proven himself to be very unstable at this point. Um, you may recall in the previous episode, he even volunteered to allow Jacob to kill his two sons if any harm came to Benjamin. And really and truly, think about that. What sense does that make? Reuben is just speaking, kind of running off at the mouth, and what is their grandfather going to do? If he was to lose Benjamin, is he what? What is the point of then turning around and killing his own grandsons? It doesn't even make sense, and uh, that would mean that Jacob would have lost Rachel, Joseph, Benjamin, and now by his own hand, if he was to take Reuben up on the offer, he would lose his two grandsons from Reuben. It doesn't even make sense, and this shows us how unstable Reuben was. He's attempting to be brave. He's attempting to be noble, but he ends up just looking foolish, not only to his father, but to those around him. And, and I could almost see Jacob just kind of looking at him with just this puzzled look on his face, like, Reuben, what are you even talking about? And it appears as though no one listened to Reuben much anymore in any event. So next we have Simeon. 
and he's now sitting in an Egyptian prison. And he's pretty much a non-factor as far as this conversation is going on because he's not there. And it seems as though no one is really in a huge hurry to rush back and get him out of prison. Uh, you know, Simeon is sitting in prison and all you got to do is let Benjamin go. And no one really seems to be that concerned about it in all honesty. And after all, uh, they've, they have had enough time uh, to consume all the supplies that they brought back and Simeon's still sitting in prison. So Levi is next. This would be son number three. He's probably fallen out of favor with the others because of his participation with Simeon in the matter of Joseph's cell. And not only that, let's not forget the Shechemite slaughter at Shechem, how they slaughtered that entire clan of people. So this leaves Judah. Judah is son number four, and he's the next in line to talk with their father. But what he has to say is well thought out, and it's to the point. And he promises himself as surety for Benjamin's safe return. But notice that this is not the same sort of foolishness that was offered up by his other brother. He says that if anything happens to Benjamin, he will bear the blame forever. Friends, forever is a long time. And he also sums it up by telling Israel that either they all die of starvation or they take a chance with Benjamin traveling with them that they all might live. In other words, he kind of just lays it out and says, Father, here's the situation. We're all dead anyway. Let's take a chance and bring Benjamin with us. And he adds that if they had not waited so long, they would have already made the trip twice by now. Obviously, the supplies are running low. And all as I always do when we talk about Judah, I want to remind you once again, this is the tribe that Jesus comes from. So in a way of thinking about it, salvation in this case is actually coming from the tribe of Judah. As we look at verses 11 through 23, Israel now prepares a gift for this man, the man. And I don't want us to miss all the fine details here. A good question would be, if there's a famine in the land... Then where in the world did Israel get all these supplies for gifts of honey and spices and myrrh and pistachios and almonds? Well, in fact, this is actually a very good question, and I can almost hear it coming from a skeptic. Behold, we have another Bible contradiction. It's a fast or a, it's a famine going on, and, and here it is in the Bible. They have honey and spices and myrrh and pistachios, and the Bible is just contradicting itself once again. Well, I would just say, okay, Mr. Skeptic or Miss Skeptic, not so fast. You see, this is a small gift. It's not a large gift. And Israel is sending it with the brothers, sending it back to Egypt. And it is from the very supplies that they brought with them from the first trip. So he's really giving them back something that, they already purchased. And why do you think he would do that? Well, 
they have some money. Remember the whole issue with the money. So Israel sends them back with money as well, as well as the gift. And then he gives them the additional money for the purchase. And where else have we seen Jacob preparing a gift? Think about this. He prepared a gift for his brother Esau when he returned. And even though the ruler of Egypt would not have a need for the gift, it's showing humility. And because of the famine, this gift is even of a greater value from the giver. So perhaps Israel is slipping back into what we might call Jacob mode. He's going to try to manipulate. He's going to try to handle it himself. You know, gifts worked on Esau. Maybe they'll work on the governor of all of Egypt. And as I have already mentioned, Israel seems to say at this point, whatever God wants to do, so be it. But there's still this part of him that wants to try just a little bit of gift giving. So let's make some notes here about money as well. First, how much did they sell Joseph for? They sold him for 20 pieces of silver. Counting the money, they are returning. How many bundles of money were the brothers carrying back to Egypt? That's right, 20 bags. That's one for each brother from the original deal, and now one for each brother for the second purpose purchase. And so my question is, do you think the brothers noticed this? And I would submit to you that if I can notice it, that the brothers absolutely noticed it. We sold our brother Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. And here we are with 20 bags of silver and we're heading back to Egypt. So when Joseph sees Benjamin, it seems to prove they were indeed sorry for what they had done and and they have not harmed Benjamin. And perhaps there was a chance of reconciliation with his brothers after all. Joseph orders the meal prepared and has his brothers brought into the house. And what were the brothers thinking by now? Is this governor mocking us? Is he? Is this going to be our final last supper before an execution? But remember Israel's prayer. Israel, Jacob, he prayed, may God Almighty give you mercy. And friends, this is the whole theme of this chapter. Mercy. And mercy is what? It is the withholding of the punishment that you so rightly deserve. And look at verse 18. They were afraid of Joseph. They reasoned that it was because of the money. We're being brought in here for this feast, and it's got something to do with the money. But as the brothers make contact with the steward, he states, what? I already had your money, he says. He says that he had received their money. And he greeted the brothers with the traditional Hebrew greeting of Shalom, Lakim, or Lakam. It means peace be with you. And he tells the brothers to not be afraid. And the implication here is that this was all done intentionally by the steward 
at the request of Joseph. Imagine their astonishment at this pagan's traditional greeting. He's greeting them the way that they would greet one another. Imagine how they felt when they see that Simeon is safe because the steward brings out Simeon. And there's even a few more things to consider here. We're going to kind of get near the end of the episode here. These brothers present their gifts and Joseph inquires about his father. And this word shalom appears three times here in verses 27 and in 28. Now in our Bibles, it'll use a word like uh, welfare or well-being or peace. But what Joseph is asking is first and foremost, how is your peace or how is your shalom? How's it going with you? How is your peace? Second question, does your father have shalom or does your father still have peace? And then they answer Joseph and they say, what? Your servant, our father, is alive and has shalom or has peace. And this entire scene here is a wash in the very peace of God. So we have a theme here of peace. We have a theme of mercy. Upon seeing Benjamin, Joseph is overcome with emotion and he runs out of the room to weep. And one way we could think of this is that Joseph's heart was so filled with mercy and compassion and peace toward Benjamin that he had to leave the room. Mercy and compassion are contained in the same Hebrew word. The same Hebrew word. Think of it. Benjamin was a baby when Joseph had seen him last, and now he's a grown man. And no doubt Joseph thought of his mother, and he could no longer contain his emotions. Did he see his mother's traits in her son, Benjamin? Notice what Joseph says to his full brother, Benjamin. It is a very tender affection that Joseph has for Benjamin. And he says, God, be gracious to you, my son. So this phrase, God, be gracious to you, it's part of the aeronautic benediction we find in Numbers 625. Aaron, as you will recall, and uh, if you go and read Numbers 6.25, you're going to find um, a blessing there, Numbers 6.25. But it's unique because these words are not found anywhere else in the Old Testament, except here, where Joseph is giving a special blessing to Benjamin. And he's saying, God be gracious to you. Think of it. Again, these men are hearing not 
not just one, but now two Egyptians speak of the one true living God. So we see grace, we see mercy, and we see peace coming through as three very powerful themes in Genesis chapter 43. So we notice something else here, which points to Joseph's assimilation into pagan culture or the attempt to get Joseph, I should say, because I don't really think that Joseph ever fully assimilated. In fact, I, I know he did not fully assimilate, uh, but there's this attempt to try to make him fit into this pagan culture. You see, Egyptians did not eat with members of other races. They did not eat with members of other nations. Friends, there was no such thing as equal rights in ancient Egypt under a pharaoh. Uh, there's no such thing as uh, not being prejudiced. Uh, they were very prejudiced. They were very proud of their empire and of their pharaoh. And so Egyptians do not eat with anyone who's not an Egyptian. So there's going to be three tables or three places actually set for this feast that Joseph is having. There's going to be one for the Egyptian guests, one for the Hebrews or the Semites, and one for Joseph as the highest ranking official there. And he is at a table by himself. You know, I read a comment, I read a commentary that put it this way. Quote, they ate in their separate groups, Joseph alone as a social superior, the Egyptians by themselves because of religious scruples, and I would add racism to that as well, and the Hebrews ate alone by elimination, end quote. You have to be careful with commentaries. They are just that. They are commentaries. They are not the scripture themselves. But commentaries are put together by men who have studied, dedicated their lives to the study of Scripture. And so sometimes you can find some value in commentaries. But I like the way it was put here. And again, this comes from someone I've been quoting from. His name is R. Kent Hughes. And I like the way he says it here. They ate in their separate groups. Joseph alone as a social superior. The Egyptians by themselves because of religious scruples. And the Hebrews alone by elimination. Next, we see that Joseph had arranged the brothers in the order of their birth. What this means is that Joseph instructed his personal house servants to seat the men in this particular birth order. Not only did the servants not question Joseph, but they must have seen this as part of his ability to see things, just like he did with dreams. After all, what are the odds of getting the birth order correct? Well, I'm so glad you asked. The odds are about 40 million to one against it. There are exactly 39,917,000 different combinations that you could have of these brothers uh, in their place settings there at the table. And somehow, the servants, based upon Joseph's 
secret knowledge. They knew exactly how to seat them. Somehow this powerful Egyptian ruler had to know more about the family. Perhaps he was able to see things spiritually about people. And we would remember that the Egyptians were pagan in their uh, worship and in their religion and in their uh, superstitions. So Joseph here, not only does he set them in the order of their birth, but he gives Benjamin five times more food than the others. Now, why would he do this? Why do you suppose that Joseph would give Benjamin five times more? Well, I believe that Joseph did this to endear himself to Benjamin. He also wanted to see if the others were jealous of Benjamin, just as jealous of Benjamin as they had been of Joseph. They passed this test. No one seemed to care that Benjamin got more food. And remember this is five times the amount of food for the youngest among them in a time of famine. And eating a large meal like this and both the Old and the New Testaments carries with it a significant meaning. There is more going on here than just a really good meal and the satisfaction of hunger. I want you to think of how Jesus shared meals with his disciples, especially that final Passover meal where he gives the elements, which now represent the new covenant in his blood and in his flesh. And yet this meal is not just an expression of communion, but it arouses within us all a sense of commonality. You see, we all need nourishment. Christians are indeed nourished at the Lord's table, but we're also remembering what he did for us and establishing the new covenant in his own blood and body. And we are being welcomed into his fellowship because of what he has done. And here we see Joseph welcoming his brothers into community with him and eventually <laughs> the entire family of nieces and nephews and his dear father are going to join in and the family will be reunited once again and joseph is saying in a manner of speaking come in to my very existence but there is one more test planned by Joseph. And we will get to that test in our next episode. And I would go so far as to say this test, not only is it from Joseph, but it is a test that is ordained by God himself. So until then, dear listeners, dear Christians who are listening, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. 
Thank you again for listening to the Forge podcast. And don't forget to leave a review with comments. Let me hear from you. Leave a voice message through the link. I hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of God's word in daily living. Remember, dear Christian, you are forgiven. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. May you grow in Christ in the study of the Bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out not only in you but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in Him. 